Well, good morning, Rocky Peak. Great to see you, whether it's here uh, in a worship venue over in the Ridge. Uh, welcome on in. It's great to be with you. My name's Michael, and I'm one of the pastors here. And, uh, and a couple things to share with you before we go into our time of teaching. Uh, first of all, if you're very discerning, you may hear kind of the frogginess in my voice, right? So uh, Thursday, I started coming down with a cold. No big deal, just a normal cold symptoms. But what that means is just a warning that I am doped up and... Uh, <laughs> Nothing I say today can be held against me in a court of law. I know for many of you, you look forward, you wait for these weekends. So um, that's number one. I just want to let you know that because as a speaker, you never know what's going to happen 40 minutes into your voice or whatever. So if it goes off the rails, we'll just all agree to ignore me and just move on because <laughs> we've got the word of God. And we've got some important stuff to do today. All right. So we'll just agree to that. So I'm going to make it fine. I just woke up from a nap. I took a nap between services. I'm feeling great. So uh, we're ready to go. It's like I got a whole new day. Uh, secondly, um, I just want to make sure that you know that, uh, that all of you, and especially those of you in the Ridge, that uh, before, uh, that about a week ago, a little over a week ago, I sent out an all-church email just to update on the future of the Ridge. And as I shared there, we're going to be taking a break from the Ridge uh, for a while and kind of shutting it down for this season. Um, and so um, next week, we'll be welcoming all of you in the Ridge back here in the Worship Center. We're really looking forward to having you back. And so if you didn't get that for some reason, you can pick up a copy of that email out at the starting point, either outside the Ridge or on our patio. We want to make sure you're all up to speed on that and the rationale behind that and so on. But right now we're going to go into our time of teaching. And so inside the program is a green and white message note sheet. We use it every week for our time of teaching. But if you're new, you may not know. And uh, you want to pull that out because that will definitely help you follow along. So if you guys are ready, I'm ready to jump in. You guys ready to go? Okay, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here in your place underneath your leadership. We are so thankful for the gift of your spirit who comes to dwell in us when we come to know you and uh, begins to change this super, uh, starts this supernatural uh, change process in our life. And so Lord, today as we talk about this new temple, this vision that you have for our lives, that we would be the temple of God, we pray that you would come and you'd speak in power. Uh, speak through me, I pray my mind would be clear, that we would gather around your word, that you'd be with us, and that we'd hear the voice of your spirit speaking to us, each personally by name, calling us on to the next step in our journey. And we all join in prayer in this. We agree to this. We say together, amen. Well, today I'm not going to kick it off as I normally do with a story. I just want to launch right into our, our text, uh, into our series. Uh, for those of you here for the very first time, we're in the midst of a series. In fact, this is the 14th week of this series. This is called Metamorphosis Face-to-Face. -face. And what this is, is that this whole series is based on a study of a letter from one of the key leaders of the early movement of Jesus. His name is Paul. We call him the Apostle Paul. And uh, he's writing to a group of Jesus followers that he's actually led to Jesus about five or six years before in a major metropolitan city in the Roman Empire, really one of the most important cities in the empire. It'd be today in southern Greece, and the name of that city is Corinth. And so we call this Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, very creative title. And uh, uh, so anyway, the reason we're calling this series Metamorphosis is because one of the key words that Paul uses in this letter to describe God's big picture vision for our lives when we come to Jesus is this little Greek word, metamorpho. And, 
And of course, it's where we get our word for metamorphosis, which describes in English as kind of a slow, but a gradual, even profound radical change, like, you know, like a caterpillar, the journey a caterpillar takes to become a butterfly. And so this is the word that Paul uses to describe what happens when a man or woman comes to Christ, enters into this new creation process, a supernatural process, where changed from the inside out by the power of God's spirit to enter into what, what Paul describes as a face-to-face relationship with God. Uh, and so today we're going to continue that journey, and today Paul's going to share some very important teaching about God's big picture vision for this metamorphosis in chapter 6. We're going to be looking at the chapters, uh, second half of chapter 6 of 2 Corinthians. So if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's go ahead and uh, open them up, turn them on, and uh, there in your note sheet you have a section called Metamorphosis, the Challenge. And so as we we're going to pick up today at verse 14, kind of where we left off, verse 13 last week. And Paul starts with this big picture, pretty strong challenge. And he says, uh, he's talking to the Corinthians, he says, hey, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, the question is, what does he mean? We'll come back to that later. But he starts with this big challenge, and then he follows up with five, count them five, um, questions, rhetorical questions, um, to help us understand why it's so important as followers of Jesus, we don't yoke together, whatever that means, with unbelievers. And so let's, let's walk through these five questions. So he says, question number one, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Question number two, what fellowship can light have with darkness? And so, of course, in the Bible, Light often speaks of what is good, right, and true. Darkness, the opposite of that, flip side. Question number three, what harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Belial is an alternate name for Satan. What, uh, question number four, what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? And question number five, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? All right, so there's one one big picture challenge, hey, don't, as followers of Jesus, don't yoke yourselves with unbelievers, whatever that means, and then five questions, powerful questions to highlight, hey, this is why it's so important that you don't do this. But the question that comes to mind, if you're just reading through Second uh, Corinthians, is if you're just reading through, the question would be, why is Paul tackling this topic at this time? Because there's nothing in the context, either before or after, that's prepared us for this. So you know how this goes. It's like as we study through the Bible every week here, especially when we're studying through uh, a letter from Paul, Paul is a super logical guy, isn't he? Like he never says anything just after saying it. It's not like just platitudes. He's always like teaching us, uh, here's the principle and therefore do this and therefore do that. And so as we teach through the word here, we're always telling you like, here's the situation. Here's what's going on. Here's why Paul is saying this. But in this particular passage, it's really kind of a mystery. If you were here last week, Dre did a great job talking about Paul's character. Do you remember that? And how while Paul is defending himself against his critics in Corinth, and he's talking about his character and how he wants to be like Jesus, and how he's lived this life of character. And he ended that by saying, so Corinthians, we love you. Would you open your hearts to us like our hearts are open to you? 
And then out of the blue, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. It's like, where did that come from? Where did, where did that come from? And the answer is, we don't know. Like, as scholars have studied this, it's like, this just comes like a shot out of the dark. Like, we don't know. And so there's many different theories. And we don't have time for all of them. But let me give you just two or three that I think will be helpful. Like, like some scholars believe that what's happened is there was somehow a break in the dictation. You know, when we look at these letters, especially a long letter like 2 Corinthians, we often think that Paul was just like sitting down and writing it in one, in one, you know, one, one, uh, one kind of period, one, one time. Like just took a couple hours and wrote it. But chances are that a long letter like this could be written over weeks or even months. And Paul's life had a lot going on, persecution, his teaching, a lot going on. And so one theory is, is that, uh, you know, when he stopped his dictation, because Paul would often dictate his letters, that he stopped at this point, and then, he, and then it maybe had been several weeks before he picked it up again. And in the meantime, some new information had come from Corinth, or some new thoughts had come, and so he just started right into them. That's like one theory. Uh, here's another theory that's very popular with many scholars, is that this is actually the result of a bad cut and paste job. <laughs> you know, that um, we know that Paul wrote at least four letters to the Corinthians. You remember the first week or two we talked about this. We only have two of them. And some, believe, some, some scholars believe that this section that we're looking at today was actually part of another one of his letters that was kind of put in with Paul's letters in Corinth and just got included at this point. But the problem with that theory is that there's no manuscript evidence that would suggest that's the case. And on top of that, like if you're just gonna put it in some, why would you put it in here? It doesn't make any more sense. It doesn't really answer the question. Um, and so there's other scholars that say, you know what, hey, wait a second. It does seem like this is coming out of the blue if you only look at the first half of chapter six. But if you stand back and look at the first six chapters, it kind of makes sense because the, the whole issue of Corinth is that they're being more conformed to their culture than to Christ. They've come to Jesus, but they're still like living life their old way. And so this is maybe what Paul's been leading up to for six chapters with this big picture vision of God's vision for our lives and for us to leave our old life behind and to stop hanging out and being associated in the same old ways with your old relationships and you need to stop it and move in the future God has for you. But <clears throat> however you look at this passage and it, however we answer that question, the bigger question, the more important question for us today is what does it mean for us today not to be yoked with unbelievers? Because it's obviously what Paul, you know, Paul said, as far as we should not be yoked with unbelievers. And so I wanna take some time and unpack this so we can uh, apply it to our lives. And to get at it, I wanna ask three questions, kind of simple questions that help us unpack this passage. So we stopped right here in the middle of the passage. We're gonna continue on through chapter seven and verse one in a few minutes, but we're gonna start the questions right now. So there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called the challenge, what does it mean? So the challenge, of course, is don't be yoked together with unbelievers. The question is, what does it mean? So here's our first question. The first question is, what is a yoke? <coughs> you know, Paul says, don't be yoked together. We don't have a lot of yokes around. 
uh, in our world today. We know what it is if we're frying up eggs, we know what a yolk is, right? <laughs> if we go to a gym, we know what it is to be yoked. But we don't know, like, you know, like what is, some of you have a good picture or some not. So let's talk about yolks. So yolks were a part of the ancient world, uh, a big part of, yolk, uh, well, of the ancient world. And so you'd see them all the time. So a yoke is just basically a piece of wood, a large piece of wood, that's been fastened to fit over the, uh, uh, some large farm animals so that they can pull heavy loads, uh, a plow or um, a, you know, like a, a cart or something like that. And so for example, I've got a couple pictures of yokes here. Like here's a yoke, right? There's this one style yoke. Now there was all different brands. Nike made yokes, Reebok made yokes, all kinds, but uh, yeah, this was a New Balance yoke. But anyway, uh, you go to the next one, yeah, here's another yoke. So, you know, different styles for different tastes, right? They brand them differently or whatever. But yeah, so yokes were common. And so it raises the question, you know, like it says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. And some of you remember when I was growing up, this very famous verse often quoted, we'll talk about it later. It would be put it like this, do not be unequally yoked, right? And so Paul's playing off of that. And so the question is, well, what does it mean to be unequally yoked. Well, to be unequally yoked in the ancient world would mean to take two different kinds of farm animals and have them put them in the same plow or the same cart. So for example, if you put an ox and a donkey under the same yoke, that would be an unequal yoke. Now, this creates problems because when you yoke together different kinds of animals, they have different strengths different sizes and different gates, their steps. And so if you're trying to accomplish work, it doesn't work very well to yoke together two different kinds of animals. And it could be dangerous for the animal itself. And this is why in the Old Testament law, we're told in Deuteronomy 22 there in your note sheet, <coughs> do not plow with an ox <coughs> and a donkey yoked together. Okay, so that would be to be unequally yoked, to have two different kinds of animals uh, that are connected together. But the question is, okay, so we get that. We, we get the metaphor. This would be a very common metaphor. You know, so in the ancient world, Paul often uses illustrations from everyday life, maybe planting and sowing like fields, or Jesus talked about vineyards or shepherds, or and Paul would talk about military or Olympic games. You take illustrations from everyday life. So the yoke was very common to them. You know, like we, we, we get yokes, we get unequal yokes. It meant a lot to them, but not as much to, to us. So what does it mean spiritually uh, to be unequally yoked? What is Paul saying? He says, don't be yoked together with unbelievers. Well, let's talk about what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that as followers of Jesus, we shouldn't have real relationships with non-believers. Um, we, we know that you know, Jesus uh, would often have fellowship with non-believers, uh, sinners, people far from God, right? Um, uh, Paul would talk about uh, the Corinthians having relationships with non-believers in 1 Corinthians. So that's not what he's talking about. But when he says that we're not to be unequally yoked or yoked together, what he's talking about is that as followers of Jesus, that we should not be yoked together 
knows uh, we should not be, uh, we should not enter into like a close and committed relationship, one that requires us to lose our freedom. Because if I'm in yoke with another animal, I can't just go where I want. Uh, so I don't want, don't enter into a close committed relationship where you lose your freedom and a relationship that causes you or requires you to compromise who you are as a follower of Jesus to be in that relationship, all right? So what we see is that um, you see this uh, examples of this in this, uh, of the yoke as a spiritual metaphor. You see it both in the Old and New Testament. Like, let me give you an example. Um, when the nation of Israel came out of bondage, came out of slavery in Egypt, God rescued them, um, that he, one of, he brought them to Mount Sinai, and he, one of the laws that he gave them was that as his people, they were not to intermarry with the pagan nations. And the reason was that they, the, these nations, if they intermarried, their hearts would be turned away to worship other gods. And so, but Israel, of course, didn't pay attention. And in fact, even before they got into the promised land, there was a situation where they were uh, near Moab, and they, were, um, in, they came to this, this area, this town called Shittim, and while they were there, these Moabite, Moabite women came out and seduced the Israel, Israeli men. And so they, they slept together, very likely as part of the worship of Baal, 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 the, uh, which was a fertility god. So because of the fertility god, there ought to be sexuality, sexual rights associated with the worship of Baal. And so the Israelite men slept with the Moabite women, and they seduced them, and they entered into worship of Baal. Right. Now, I want you to see how, how the Bible describes this there in your note sheet in Numbers chapter 25. It says, so Israel, what, what is it? So Israel, what? They yoked themselves to the Baal, the Baal of Peor, and the Lord's anger burned against them. So here's an Old Testament uh, illustration of using yoke as a spiritual metaphor. They, they entered into these close sexual relationships, they, and that led them into the worship of Baal. They yoked themselves to Baal. On the flip side, we've got a positive side of a yoke in the New Testament, where Jesus has this famous verse. He says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then on your note, she says, take my what? Take my yoke upon you. See, this would be like very normal for them. They get yokes. We, we don't. But take my, <laughs> I can't imagine, you know, without any context, someone comes here and says, hey, take my yoke on you. You're like, what? You know? So, but in their context, to be very like normal, take my yoke on you, is, was a way of saying, be my disciple. Come under my leadership. Um, <clears throat> let me be the one that leads and teaches your life. Let me control where you go. Take my yoke upon you. Right? So, so what Paul is saying, <clears throat> so what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians, he's saying, hey, as followers of Jesus, you have taken Jesus' yoke on you. Like you're followers of Jesus. Your top priority in life is to know him to love him and to please him. And so don't ever enter into any other relationship, a deep and committed relationship that causes you to be yoked to someone. So you lose that freedom. 
to follow after Jesus and where any relationship that causes you to compromise or requires you to compromise who you are in such a way that those five questions get played out in your life. Don't enter into a relationship that causes you to do wickedness, <clears throat> that requires you to mix light with darkness, that, uh, that would uh, cause you to follow Satan instead of Jesus, to, be, to become, follow into idolatry and so on. <clears throat> so, the question is, so how does that apply to our lives? Like, what does it look like for us today as followers of Jesus not to be yoked together? Well, um, many of you have probably heard this, that this, this passage has often been applied to, uh, to marriage, right? So, for example, you meet someone, and they say, uh, hey, I'm really, they're, they're single, and they're really excited because they met this guy, and he's amazing, and, and they're just like, he's so awesome, and it's just like, he's got, he's got a job, uh, you know, <laughs> and he's not, he's not living with his parents, and it's just, he's amazing, and, and, uh, and so I, I want to marry him, you know, I'm, I'm thinking he might be the one, and so you say, well, that's, where is he at spiritually? Well, yeah, he's not yet a believer, but he's a good guy, and he kind of believes in God. And so we would often challenge one and like, well, yeah, but you don't want to be married to that would be like to be unequally yoked, right? And so often we've used the passage in that way. And that's a great way to use this passage. It's a great application because what relationship is there that's more yoking than marriage? I mean, marriage is the closest relationship. So if you're a follower of Jesus and you're single, the highest calling in your life is to know, love, and please Jesus. You're a follower of Jesus. By definition, you've taken his yoke upon you. Why would you ever enter into a relationship of marriage with someone else who is not under the yoke of Jesus? They're not following Jesus. You would lose your freedom. You would lose your impact. You lose your independence. There's going to be many times when your top priority is going to be at odds with that person's top priority. It's not going to work for you. It's going to rub it's going to rub you raw on both sides. And so, yeah, that's a great application. Now, quick sidebar. Of course, in, in 1 Corinthians 7, the previous letter that Paul had written, he said, like, if you, if you come to Jesus and you're, all, and you're already married to a, a non-believer, then stay with that person if they're willing because who knows, you may bring them to Christ. Right, so, so if you're, that, that's my, you're already unequally yoked. He, he says, he doesn't say break the yoke. It's like stay in it and so that hopefully they can come to Christ, you can be equally yoked. But he says if you're, uh, uh, if you're single and you're not a believer and, you, and you're, uh, you're, you're not married, then you need to make sure you marry someone in the Lord, right? So that's a great application of this, prince, of this passage. However, I wanna point out that's not why this passage was written. This passage has much broader application that when Paul was writing, he wasn't thinking, hey, some of you are dating non-Christians. That's not, we'll talk about what he was talking about in a minute, but that's not it, it's much broader. He says, followers of Jesus, we would not enter into, any of us would enter into a relationship that's deep, that's committed, where we lose our freedom, and that requires or causes us to do wickedness. 
It causes, lead causes us to go. So what would this apply? This could apply, uh, like possible application, could, could apply to certain business relationships or partnerships. It could involve being involved in certain kind of industries or working in certain kinds of jobs that require you by definition to compromise who you are. It could uh, involve other, uh, like voluntary associations. I think of, uh, you know, kind of in the past, like, like country clubs that are all white. You know, and it's like a, and so it's like a racially bi, like that's a compromise, right? It's a compromise with darkness. I think of uh, uh, students in college, there's be certain fraternities or certain sororities that may require you through their initiation rites or their ongoing uh, activity to compromise who you are. And so the point would be, as far as of Jesus, we should not enter into any relationship where we yoke ourselves to other people in such a way we lose our independence and we find ourselves required or caused to go into wickedness or darkness. That's the big picture principle, all right? But at least to the second question, and the second question is, what is the issue? Don't you like how my voice is? It's like I'm like 13. I'm going, uh, uh. <laughs> I'm feeling so young. It's awesome. Um, yeah, so, so what is the issue? Like, if you're regular here at Rocky Peak, you know this. When we walk through the word, we're always setting up in context. And whenever Paul or one of the apostles or whatever is teaching something, saying, why is he saying this? What's the situation that's calling this forth? So in this situation, where Paul is saying, hey, don't yoke yourself with unbelievers, it raises the question, who are these unbelievers? Like, why is Paul concerned? Who are the unbelievers, and in what way were the Corinthians yoking themselves? And the answer, once again, is we don't know. Because this passage, because it comes out of the blue from left field, there's no context before or after. There's very little indications of what specifically he has in mind. And so as a result of this, if you were to study this passage in depth, what you'd find is that scholars, Bible teachers, pastors, there's many different opinions as what the real issue was. And we don't have time for all of them, but what I wanna do is highlight two of them that I think are two of the better options, that whether they're right or not, they are definitely help us understand the situation at Corinth as we go through this whole letter. So there in your note sheet, <coughs> you have a couple bullets. Let's fill them in. So the first, the first option I wanna highlight, I think is one of the better ones, is that Paul's concern is idolatry. This is gonna give us a chance to talk about what it's like to be a Christian in the first century and some application for our lives. So one of the theories is that what Paul is really concerned with is that the Corinthians have come to Jesus but they're still participating in pagan festivals and feasts and celebrations. They're still participating to some degree in pagan worship. Now. There's a really good reason why this is one of the best theories. And one of, one of the, like we know this was an issue in Corinth. Like if you go back 12 months, 18 months back to 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about this issue a lot. Food sacrificed to idols, going to the temples, things like that. Um, that this was a big issue. And I think for us as 21st century Christ followers, it's really hard for us to understand the ethos, the, the, what it was like to live in the first century religiously. All right? So 
Like in our culture today, we have a, a pretty stark separation, and it's becoming more so all the time, a big separation between like church and state, right? But in the ancient world, that was not the case. There was no division between church and state. It was called religion and state, or, or religion uh, uh, and uh, uh, between like, yeah, religion and state. Uh, there was no break between business and religion. There was no break between social relationship and religion. Like the worship of the gods was interwoven into every part of life. Now we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but I don't know about you, but when I, I tend to think of the gods, you know, when I think of, uh, you know, Greek gods, Roman gods, I think of kind of the first century uh, my mind naturally tends to go back to you know, high school class or college class on, on like the uh, Roman and Greek pantheons. Like you tend to think of the major gods. Like you know, if I were to ask you, you know, who are some of the, the Roman gods or the Greek gods? You'd probably throw out names like Mars, Venus, Zeus, Jupiter, Athena, uh, Apollo, you know, these kind of Hermes, right? And that'd be great. And, and so we often tend to think of these, they, they had, I don't know, maybe 20 or 30 big gods. But the reality is, in the ancient world, there were not like 10, 20, or 30 gods. There were literally hundreds and perhaps thousands of gods. And there were gods for everything. Not, there were not just gods for like agriculture, there were gods for every stage of agriculture. The gods of planting, the gods of watering, the gods of growth, the gods of harvest, the gods of this. I mean, there were gods of childbirth, there were gods of travel, there were gods of eating, there were household gods, there were city gods, there were uh, empire gods, there were gods of your trade guild. I mean, there were gods everywhere. And so every part of your life was filled with the gods. I shared with you a couple weeks ago this excellent book that I read a few years ago by a scholar named Larry Hurtado on the, like, early, the early centuries of the Roman history, what life was like and how different Christianity was when it came in. And he talks about this there on your note sheet. He has this great quote, he says, in the Roman Empire, what moderns call religion was virtually everywhere. It was a regular and integral part of the fabric of life. As we've noted, members of Roman households, the family and their slaves too, they gathered daily to reverence the household lares. That's the gods. Like, do you remember the movie Gladiator when he would have his little gods wrapped up and he would pull out his little gods? Those were his lares. Like every family would have, a, when I was in Pompeii a couple years ago, when you would go into one of the big uh, like estates or whatever, the big vias there, that you know, there would be the household gods right to the right that you would honor as you'd come into you know, each house. So he says um, that uh, the family and their slaves too gathered daily to reverence the household lares. Residents of a given city might be expected to take part in periodic expressions of reverence such as processions and sacrificial offerings to the guardian god or the goddess of the city. Do you remember in Ephesus when Paul was in Ephesus in Acts 19 and, and there was this riot, great as Artemis, great as Diana, great as he almost killed there because she was the patron god of that city. Um, 
If you go on the next paragraph, even in ordinary activities such as giving birth or eating or traveling and the meetings of guilds and the other social groups or informal meetings of the city council, people typically offered appropriate expressions of reverence to the relevant divinities. For example, <coughs> on, on uh, many such occasions, a libation of wine might be made. That is, a bit of wine spilled out in honor of the tutelary deity of the occasion. Right? So you, you'd gather for the city council meeting, and that's libation of wine to whatever god was going to be uh, honored there. At the highest and widest level, there were also deities identified as guardians and the ultimate basis of the empire itself. And so when Christians would not worship the gods, it threatened the integrity of the empire. People saw them as a threat to society. If we don't honor the gods, the gods won't protect us. The gods will bring us down. Here's a group of people. They're not honoring the gods. They're a danger to us. It says, in short, from the lowest to the highest spheres of society, all aspects of life were presumed to have connections with the deities of various kinds. There was really nothing like the modern notion of separate secular space of a life free from deities and relevant ritual. So imagine you come to Jesus. Paul comes to Corinth. He shares Jesus. You hear about him. You're a slave. Uh, you're a slave and, uh, and you become a Christian. But now every day your owner gets the whole household together to worship the Lares. Like, what do you do? Your whole family goes to the pagan temple and it's part of the social, it's where you network. It's where a lot of social dinners, restaurants were there. But before, the, before you have dinner, they, they, they pray to the God and they slaughter the animal and that's the meat that's gonna be barbecued. And like, like how do you as a Christian live out your allegiance to Jesus in a culture where the gods are everywhere? It was a big deal. And we know from 1 Corinthians, many of the Corinthians were compromising on this. They were participating in a bit. In fact, there's certain Christians in Corinth that were still arguing that it was okay to go to the, uh, to, say, on the Acropolis, remember that big hill uh, on the top of the, the temple to Aphrodite, and, and have sex as part of their worship because God doesn't really care what happens with our, our bodies, they're gonna die anyway, that he cares about our hearts. And so we know from 1 Corinthians, this was a big issue. And so there are many scholars, they say, well, we think what's going on here is when Paul says, do not bind yourself. He's talking about binding yourself like Israel did in the wilderness with Baal. Like, like that's what he's talking about. And one of the reasons they believe this is because if you look at those five questions, those five rhetorical questions, the first four are very generic, right? They're, they're like, uh, how can, you be a, how can uh, light have fellowship with darkness? How can uh, righteousness have, what does righteousness have in common with wickedness? Very generic. But if you get to the last question, look at the last question in chapters, um, chapter 6 and verse seven, uh, 16. He says, what agreement is there between the temple of God and what? Idols. Idols. It's the one question out of all five. That gets very specific and talks about idolatry. So there are many scholars who believe, hey, this is what the issue was. The problem with that point of view, the problem for me at least, with that point of view is that there is no other mention of idolatry in all 13 chapters of 2 Corinthians. 
And if this is the big issue that everything's been leaning up to, then that seems really odd. In fact, as we'll see in a minute, that Paul is very concerned with a wide variety of sin in Corinth, and he's gonna talk about that in just a minute, and idolatry's not even mentioned in the list at the end of the, end of the letter, right? So, but that's one theory, and I think it's a good theory, and if nothing else, it helps us understand what they were facing in Corinth. Uh, the second theory, I just call this one the second bullet, I just called it sin slash compromise. And so in this theory that what Paul is talking about, do not bind yourself, he's not talking about a specific binding like idolatry, but he's talking about in general, just hanging out with your old friends and doing life in the same old ways. And so for example, if you go to chapter 12, which we'll get to in about 14 years, uh, no, actually, we'll be there in October. But, um, but if you go to chapter 12, Paul is starting to wrap up the letter. And he's warning them, hey, I'm coming to Corinth for the third time. And uh, you need to get your act together because if you don't, um, I'm coming and I'll have to help. <laughs> and so it's kind of like, hey, dad's coming, clean up your room. And so <laughs> when you get to chapter 12, uh, this is what we're told. Come on, there we go. Um, he says, uh, I'm afraid that when I come, I won't like what I'll find. And you won't like my response. And I'm afraid that I will, when I'll come, and, and I'll notice the wide variety of sin that's going on. I'll find quarreling and jealousy. These are the kinds of issues from 1 Corinthians, by the way. Anger, selfishness, slander, gossip, arrogance, disorderly behavior, and I'll be grieved because of many of you have not given up your old sins. You've not repented of your impurity, of your sexual immorality, and your eagerness for lustful pleasures. So what you can see here is that Paul has a lot of concerns about what's going on at Corinth. They've come to Jesus, but for many at least in the congregation, they are still living kind of with one foot in their old life and one foot in the new. And so there are many scholars that believe that when Paul says don't be yoked together with unbelievers, he's not really addressing a particular uh, issue like idolatry. He's just saying, hey, you need to leave your past behind. You can't hang out in the same old places, do the same old things, that you need to make a break with your past if you're gonna move into the future God has for you. All right, so we don't really know exactly what the reference is, but both of these give us some context for where we're going today. Now, number three, the third question. The third question is, what is the big deal? Like, Paul is obviously very concerned. And you can tell that concern, not only by his challenge, but by the specific questions. Like when Paul says, hey, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. And then he asks these five questions. So, because what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What if darkness and the light, how can they have communion where they share? How can you follow Jesus and Satan? This is pretty heavy duty stuff, isn't it? Look, we don't know what's going on, but something big is going on. And the question is, what's the big deal? What's his concern? Why is it so important that they don't continue to be yoked with unbelievers? What is at stake? And to understand this, we have to go back to the passage itself and, and wrap up the passage. So let's go back. We're going to pick up where we left off at verse 16. 
And in verse 16, it says, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? That's the fifth and final rhetorical question. And then comes this statement. For we are the temple of what? We are the temple of the living God. And so now we come to one of the most important teachings of the New Testament of the Bible, and it's what I would describe as temple theology. Now this is an incredibly important uh, concept that really helps us understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus, what God's been after all along the story of our race. Um, he says, as, and he goes on, we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live among them and I will walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. It's a quote from the Old Testament. So this takes us to the heart of what I would describe as temple theology. So let's talk about this, right? This is so important we get this. Uh, I want to go back in time. I want to go back in time to when God first calls the nation of Israel, rescues them out of slavery in Egypt, brings them to Mount Sinai. He enters into covenant with them there. You remember that? We talked to this back in chapter. He enters into covenant. He shows up with this amazing display of power. And his offer is, I will be your God. You will be my people. And uh, much like a marriage proposal. And you remember Israel said, I do. Yes, we want in. And so they enter into this formal agreement we call covenant, much like a marriage, often compared to a marriage. And they say, yes, we want in. And God says, okay, so now that we're in covenant, I want to move in, like you'd move in, like you marry someone, you move in. And so he says, so you live in tents. I want you to build me a special tent. And I want this tent to be right in the middle of your nation. Now this is very significant. It's sending a message that God never wants to be on the periphery of our lives. God always wants to be in the dead center, the source of our lives. And so he was very specific. I want three tribes, and he names them. Three tribes to the north, three to the south, three to the east, three to the west. I want to be right in the center. And once they build that tabernacle, that, special, that movable tent, it takes about a year to build it. And once they build it, in Exodus 40, God moves in. The presence of God comes, fills the temple. Do you remember that? And of course, that is then basically hundreds of years later, they build the permanent temple in Jerusalem. Same thing happens. God moves in. And all this is a profound spiritual picture this is God's vision from the start. We are created for a relationship with God, that we would live with God, that we would be his people. He would be our God. He would walk with us. It's been the vision from the beginning. It's what we lost at the fall. And through Israel, God is restoring that. And so he's coming ever closer. And so he comes in the tabernacle and then he comes in the temple. And then when Jesus comes, Jesus is the temple. God comes closer still to live in our midst. Remember what Jesus said? He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. But God was gonna come closer still. And that's what the promise of the new covenant of Jeremiah 31 that we studied back in chapter three, that there'd come a time when God would forgive our sins and would come closer and he would write his law in our hearts and in the words of Ezekiel, his spirit would fill us. 
And so because of that, as followers of Jesus, when a man or woman comes to Jesus, we become the temple of God. Your body is a temple of God, my body. And together as the community of Jesus, we are the temple. Now catch this, Paul had taught temple theology to the Corinthians, they knew this. For example, there in your note sheet, in 1 Corinthians, remember he wrote this 12, 18 months before, he says, do you not know, and by the way, when Paul says, do you not know, he says this often, he's right, do you not know, it's not really like, oh, you didn't know, it's like, you know this, right? right. It's like when you ask your, like you're, you're upset with your child, and you say, didn't I tell you? <laughs> you're not really looking for the answer of no, I've never heard that. <laughs> what you're looking for is the answer is, yes, you told me that, I should have known that. Yeah. And so when Paul says, did you not know, it's always with that like, Hello, anyone home? Y'all know this, right? And so he says, don't you know that you yourselves are what? You're God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst. So in this passage, chapter three, Paul's talking about how corporately together as the people of Jesus, we are the temple. But in chapter six, he talks about how we're individually the temple, how our bodies, in fact, he says, this is why sexual purity is so important. When you, when, since, since you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, when you unite yourself to someone like illicitly sexually, you're taking the temple of God into that, right? And so in chapter six, he says, do you not know that your bodies are what? Temples of the Holy Spirit, who you have, whom you've received from God. So they were full aware. The Corinthians understand temple theology. This is the big picture vision. There's come a day that when Messiah would come, he would give his life, that there'd be a way for God to move into our lives, to lead us, to guide us, to dwell, so we become sons and daughters of the king. This has been the story all along. And Paul says, this is why it's such a big deal. If you associate your, if you link up, you yoke yourself with unbelievers, you bring, you yoke yourselves up with wickedness, you yoke yourselves with darkness, you yoke your Satan, don't you realize who you are and what has happened to you? And he said, like, like Israel of old, you need to leave idolatry behind. In fact, He's gonna go on here and he's gonna to begin to weave together in a very creative way several different quotes from the Old Testament that in their original context, catch this, they all dealt with leaving idolatry. And look what he says. At the end of verse 16, he says, so I will live with them and I will walk with them and I will be their God and they'll be my people. Therefore, and this is in the more quotes from the Old Testament, come out from them and be separate says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And he says, therefore, since we have these promises that we are the new temple, that we can be sons and daughters of God, he says, since we have this, then let us purify ourselves as followers of Jesus from everything that contaminates body or spirit, you know, inside or outside perfecting holiness, purifying ourselves out of reverence or fear for God, right? So this is the passage. It starts off with a big challenge, don't yoke yourselves, um, and then he tells us why this is so important because there's such a high calling on your life, you're the temple of God, you're the sons and daughters of the king, and then he ends it with a final challenge since we have these amazing uh, promises, 
Let's purify ourselves of anything that would hold us back from moving into this new future God has for us, right? So that's the passage. So now, it leads to one important question for our lives. And this is where the rubber meets the road today for us. So there on your note sheet, it says the new temple, one final question. And this is a a question I want to ask you for you to reflect on and just to be open to whatever the Holy Spirit wants to show you in your life. And the question goes like this. Are there any idols in your temple? If you're a follower of Jesus here today, that are, are there any idols? So, so let's get clear on this. I want to zero, let's get really clear. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you're not yet the temple of the living God that God wants to come in, he wants to enter you. And this is why through Christ died, so that there'd be a way for you to be forgiven, and so that God can come and dwell in you to lead and guide and change you from the inside and, and make you the person you're supposed to be, you're created to be, to transform you, right? The metamorphosis. So if you're not yet a believer, then you're not yet the temple, and you, you need to ask Jesus into your life to start that process. But if you are a believer here today, I want you to catch this, that according to the word of God, you are the temple of God. Not you will be, not someday. But if you're a follower of Jesus, you've given your life to Jesus, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This is why Jesus died, so he could come and live, like God lives in you. You are his son, you are his daughter. You've come into this new relationship. You are the temple of God. And so the question is, as the temple of God, are there any idols that you've erected or allowed to still stand in the temple of Yahweh in your life? You know, it's interesting, in the Old Testament, you know, Israel got so far off track that in the time of Ezekiel, they actually brought the, the uh, idols into the temple of God to worship foreign idols. And the question is, are there any idols in your life that you need to tear down, that you need to come out and touch no unclean thing, you need to leave behind so the presence of God can fill your temple Amen. and you can grow and thrive and be used to be the person you are created to be. And you say, well, what's an idol? Let me define an idol for you. An idol is whatever is ultimate value, in our, has ultimate value in our life other than God. Like anything that has ultimate value, this is our ultimate value, something other than God, this ultimate value, that is our idol. So that could be anything, right? It could be a person. It could be a position. It could be power. It could be pleasure. It could be a certain kind of pursuit. This is our top priority, you know? Like for some people, I, I, I'm gonna climb Mount Everest and that's like the, the driving force of my life. It's a, I'll sacrifice anything for that. It could be a pursuit. Um, it could be possessions. It could be popularity. For some of us, like one of the idols of our life is just popularity, like what our mom thinks of us. It's the most important thing. We might be 49 years old, but what our mom thinks of us is the most important thing 
in our life or what this other person thinks of us or trying to be in this crowd or be accepted here or, hey, I want to be whatever's politically correct. I want to be an in crowd. But it doesn't really matter what it is. It's, it's, but it, what it matters is there's something in your life that is the most important value in your life. It's your ultimate value other than God. And that becomes an idol. And you say, well, how do I know what my idols are? Well, it's pretty simple. All you need to do is watch what are those things in your life that keep you from listening and following Jesus and his word and his spirit. What are those things that keep you or that tempt you to not follow Jesus and his word and his spirit? Whatever those things, if you chase it down, I, I know this is what Jesus is calling you to do, but I don't want to do it. If you follow that out, why don't I want to do it? It will lead you to your idol. It, you just follow that out. It will lead you to what it is. This, you love Jesus, but you love this more. Right? Now, here's the thing. As followers of Jesus, I don't think cleansing the temple is something that we have to do just once in our life. Because the more we grow, the more the Holy Spirit begins to reveal to us. We have more idols than we realize. When you first come to Christ, there's like several things that right away we often like, oh, that's gotta go. We realize that's an idol, but you know, as we, we follow Jesus and we go, and the Holy Spirit begins to show us new layers, new things that have to go. And here's what I want you to catch. Every time that we tear down and cleanse the idol, guess what? The presence of God fills that space. And what happens is our relationship as a son or daughter grows every time. And so it's often hard because what an idol promises, here's the promise an idol makes. If you serve me, I will make you happy. That's why we serve idols. Because we truly believe if I could just get that position, if I could just be popular in that group, if I could just be that, get that person, if I just have these possessions, I'll be happy. That's what idols promise. They promise, if you worship me, I will bless you. But the problem is, it's a lie. Because the reality is, we were made to be sons and daughters of the living God. We were created to walk with him, for him to be our God, and for us to be his people. And there's nothing else that can satisfy that deepest longing of the human heart. So what happens is when we trust him and we tear down our idol, we experience the presence of God, the power of God, the leading of God in new ways. We experience what it is to be a son or daughter of the king, that we grow, we're changed and transformed. And this is what the Corinthians were not willing to do. They were still worshiping the gods of their culture either literally or figuratively. And as a result, they were not being transformed. And Paul comes to him and says, hey, you need to leave the past behind. You need to purify yourself, body and spirit, of everything that's holding you back because you have these amazing promises and you do not want to miss out on the presence, the power, the leading, the being used by this God who's called you, not simply to be forgiven, but to be a son or daughter of the king. Amen? Amen. 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 Let's pray together. 
Father, we thank you for the beauty of your word and the way it challenges us, the way it reveals truth, and the way it calls us to this new life. And we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be over us now, and that if there's something in our life right now that you're saying, hey, we need to purify this so we can move into the future, that we would say yes to you. And if there's nothing right now, if we're in a great space right now and you're just very pleased with where we are, that we would not worry about kind of looking for something that's not even there, but that we would just feel your pleasure and that right now we are right on track. I just pray your Holy Spirit would guide us and direct us. And if there's anything in our temple that needs to be cleansed, that we would remove that so that you could fill the temple with your presence and power and that we could walk with you as your sons and daughters in newness of life. And so, Lord, as we worship you now, as we sing this beautiful song that you can have it all, Lord, we, we present it as an offering of praise and an offering of sacrifice, a tearing down of idols. And we pray that as we, as we worship, as we bring your gifts or offerings, you would use these to build a place, a temple, where you are living and walking with us and the message of salvation is going forth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Let's stand together. Let's pray together. Father, that's the prayer of our hearts, that you would take this heart, and we want to say you can have it all today. Lord, we want to tear down any idols, and Lord, we know that's something we can't do on our own. We need the, the power of your spirit to do that, and so we just pray that you would speak to us, you'd reveal to us any idols that need to go, and then you'd, you'd empower us to say yes to you. Father, we just pray that that, that would happen and we would move into a whole new era of our lives and even as a church together as we learn to tear down our idols, to welcome the Holy Spirit to, to his rightful place at the center of our lives. And so we pray that you be with us this week as we listen, um, as we listen for the voice of your spirit, as we respond to what we've learned. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Hey, well, it's so good to be with you today. A couple things as we go. First of all, just remind you that whether you're in the Ridge venue or whether you're uh, here in our worship uh, center, that on my right and your left, as always, we have a prayer team there with badges on. They'd love to pray with you about anything going on in your life that you, you would like prayer for. Secondly, I hope you can be with us next week. Next week, we actually come to the end of this first uh, section of, um, of Second Corinthians. Uh, a powerful message, powerful topic. Really looking forward to teaching on that. The following week, of course, we have baptisms. And then the following week, we kick off uh, the next stage of our journey of metamorphosis. It's called Growing in Generosity. So really excited about what's coming up. Hope you can be with us every week. And if you have to be on vacation right now, or not have to be, but you're on vacation, <laughs> if you're so uh, privileged to be on vacation, uh, be sure to catch up with us with our YouTube, our YouTube channel uh, or iTunes uh, audio channel and uh, so you can take continue this journey. But until next week, um, may the Lord be with you and may you um, in fresh way uh, understand the incredible privilege and the price that was paid so that you could be the temple of the living God and that you would respond with a full heart to these amazing promises that God has given us that he will move in and that in our lives, that we would just be open to the Holy Spirit and to any areas where there's idols that have been erected that perhaps we've not even been aware of, that he would reveal those, we would say yes, and so we'd be filled with his spirit and walk as his sons and daughters, amen? amen. God bless you, I'll see you next week. Have a great week. <laughs>